It's hard to know what to do with your dreams. The word itself has more than one meaning, I guess, right? Like, we use it for sure to refer to what happens at night when you're asleep and, like, all the crazy comes out, right? And it's just you and your own head and you wake up and you're like, what was that? Hey, I had a dream, right? And it's some bizarre thing, which maybe has the meaning connected to the relationships and events of the previous days. And science would imply that the human brain as an organism, as a, as a muscle made of energy and fat, if you can imagine such a thing, it's a mystery still how it works. But that one of the things it does often is it defragments itself. It is all the stuff coming at you all day long, you kind of put it in line. And then at night, your, your heart and your soul go in and they kind of massage that a bit and try to move stuff where it's supposed to be. And your dreams are connected to that uh, rapid eye movement sleep, which you get in, I think, the third to third and a half hour of your night of getting good rest. Um, that's when these dreams come. Uh, all of this to me is doubly fascinating as a, a sleep apnea patient who sleeps with a, a CPAP machine. I can honestly tell you, I don't really dream. I've had a few. Uh, and usually I really do remember them because they are that rare to me. But I know everyone else or most people have a lot of these things, and it's the way we use the word. Um, but there's another way we use the word, which I have a lot of. I have so much of this, it's like working on overtime. And that's when you're daydreaming, right? Which is kind of a different thing. It's not so much the defragmenting of yesterday as the, the hoping for tomorrow. Usually built on some nostalgia for the past. So you you know there is something that is, and you know it can and should be good, and so you imagine, right, you dream about some other future. And maybe that's just, you know, I'm waking up and I'm dreaming of a cup of coffee, which is usually the first dream of my day, and until it comes to pass, until the dream proves itself to be true as a potential uh, I am in a different state of life. I will, I will confess that. In fact, on, on my trip to Alaska, this has nothing to do with Alaska, but one of my favorite things was the paper cup um, that said uh, at the top, it said on and off. And then the bottom, there was another line right before the bottom of the cup. It said on. You know, so you pour your coffee and you set it on the table and everyone knows not to talk to you until it, the line gets down to the bottom of the cup, right? So I, you know, a dream, a dream. Um, Dreams are how we operate. It's how we move forward. Let's get together, have dinner tonight. You know, it's not that that's bad, but then you also have this way that these dreams become plans, right? They become big ideas, big hairy ideas they used to talk about in the church growth movement, uh, audacious goals. And we have a whole system devoted to like helping you achieve your dreams or telling you as a young child to follow your dreams. Right? And so there's, there's all that language around this word that in, in the Old Testament is just so foreign, actually, as a way of thinking to what we use the word to mean that I don't even know how to begin to tell you about it because it's a little bit of, of the birds and the bees, actually. The word dream in Hebrew is like about the birds and the bees, specifically with the guys at night. And kids ask your parents at home because they should tell you. Okay. Um, but that's the word dream, 
okay? And Joseph has one of these, excuse the phone as it falls, Joseph has a dream, he says, and he gets treated with some shamefulness, which you can maybe see a bit of even overlap there. But you can also see very much in the ancient mind how this very word dream is about the coming of age of all people, but seen through the boy becoming a man. How do you know a boy is a man? How do you know a girl is a woman? What is a woman, right? I mean, that's what they're saying out there. There are ways to know this, and it largely has to do with the birds and the bees. Yeah? Uh, and, and with how you take care of these very particular and special gifts of God that we've been given to be with each other. And this marvel called marriage and family and, and all of this stuff, right? And the word, again, that they use to describe this thing that happens to a boy at a certain point in his life when he's about to become a man, that they call dream everywhere else, the word is just the word to be strengthened. Which again is like, where is that from? Yeah, I have a dream. It's not, it's not the same word, do you see? And what is clear then from the book of Genesis is that the ancient mindset of the Hebrew faithful was that if you had a dream, it definitely was put there by God. It absolutely was put there by God, but that doesn't mean that it's true because God used your heart to do it. So the biggest thing to learn about Genesis and revelation and visions and dreams as Christians is not whether or not God speaks to us in dreams, because he clearly did. He hasn't promised that he will, but some claim that he does. Well, then the main thing to know is what's the difference between a true dream and a false dream. What's the difference between something that comes out of a man that has strengthened him in the faith in Jesus and something that comes out of a man that tears down the community that would follow Jesus? True doctrine, false doctrine, right? Walking the path, falling away. How do you want to talk about it? Does it matter? Always the same reality. And what we see again and again in the Bible is that God will then take his word and insert it through these dreams in such ways that now our dreams have to be about such things. So let me say this a different way. If you're dreaming a bunch of crazy stuff, but you just watched two different movies tonight and surfed, what do they call it now? Is it Twitter? I can't remember. <laughs> and surfed the internet. And went through a day in which you had messages coming left and right, left and right, left and right, always putting out fires. Well, yeah, you're scattered. And you're not going to have a dream in which Jesus is like, I love you. Trust me. Well, you might. But if, if you, I'm, you can't do this. I can't do this. If you spent eight hours a day reading the Bible, 40 hours a week, I'm pretty sure you'd be dreaming about Jesus. Because that's how it works, right? What goes in is what's in. And, and my message to you, people of God here at St. Paul and in Rockford and across the world is put more word in because they're trying to take it out right now. Not take it, they're trying to drown it out right now. Uh, not trying, they are drowning it out right now. And so our voices must be raised again in a dream that's not a dream, but a revelation of vision because what Joseph has happened to him is not a dream. Uh, the way we would use the word. It is a prophecy, right?
is a prophecy. And as a slow study of the Old Testament will tell you, and as Luther tells you quickly, all prophecy comes from the first prophecy. And whatever God inserts by way of an actual vision, like I see the throne of God up high, much of what comes next that the prophet says is actually quoting previous prophets, previous Psalms, previous Proverbs, Torah, and beyond. So that the word of God is never saying new things ever. It's just saying it more poetically until the fullness of the epic comes to pass and the man actually dying before our eyes, right? And now we're left with this legendary tale as our song to keep us alive through a veil of tears in which everyone's bored with it for some reason. They forgot, I think, what it meant. And then uh, taking too much time just to get into the idea of dreams here, yes? But the the story of Joseph is going to be about this for us. What does it mean for you to read the story of Joseph and want to be like him. Because that's a good dream. And it's a seed that the story wants to implant in you, that the Holy Spirit desires you to perceive yourself as being like Joseph. So that you might know that no matter where you go, no matter what happens to you, you might have the kind of confidence that Joseph has. And might know that the end result of your life will be the result that Joseph receives even if you end up crucified on a tree at age 33. The peak of your prime, never married, not a child. Yet nonetheless, when John sees him, it's just like a couple months later on Pablo's, he's got white hair, blowing fire everywhere, and he says, go uh, feed my sheep, discipline my sons, baptize my children, bring them all to me, my family. Yeah. So the story is about Christ, but since you are in Christ, this story is about you now as they all are, for you to find wisdom and hope in in the story as it goes. So let's spend the rest of our time on that this morning, uh, uh, rather than uh, more on the idea of how to tell true and false dreams apart. I'm going to start with some background to the story on page 28 of your Pew Bible. Uh, This is uh, going to be at verses 18 through 20 of chapter 33. It's the bottom left corner of the page. And we're just kind of picking up Um, from what happens after Jacob meets Esau, right? Jacob, Esau, born as twins, don't like each other. Jacob steals the blessing, runs away, meets both his wives, takes 14 years, becomes exceedingly rich, is blessed by God, sees Jacob's ladder, comes back to meet Esau, is afraid he's going to die, wrestles with God by a river, gets his hip broken, gets named Israel, doesn't die at Jacob's hands, they part ways. What happens next is verse 18 of chapter 33. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. It's in the north part of Israel, Shechem, uh, which is in the land of Canaan. On his way to Padam Aram, that's where his dad and his brother were, uh, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he he bought for a hundred pieces of money the land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which... uh, I don't have that memorized. Uh, God, the God of Israel. So after he declines to go with Esau's army and keeps his little group separate from Esau, uh, he goes to a nearby city. I don't know the size of this city, but I do know that to be a city, you would have had a wall. It's the big difference is some guy decides to build a wall and he's king. Right? That's how city-states began. They come there and they camp outside of it. And they're like a small military group if they want to be. So they stay a little ways away and they buy the land. 
Uh, what, what happens next is something that uh, the New King James calls the Dinah incident. I mean, it sounds like, like a bad spy movie from the 80s. Um, it, it is the rape of Dinah is what happens next, which is the one daughter that Jacob has. And, and she is taken and abused by the king of or the son of the king of Shechem, who, after he abuses her, desires to marry her, uh, which is... I guess worse than this or better than despising her maybe, but like none of this is good, right? We can all agree with that. Yeah. Let me just remind you that uh, before 20 years ago or so, before 30 years ago, rape was a crime punishable by death in almost every state in the United States. And it is the powers that be that are the powers that be now that have stopped that from being the case. And so if we want to be concerned about the future culture and safety of our women, particularly on college campuses, we might consider making rape dangerous for men to do again. That's what doesn't happen in this story that gets the brothers so upset, right? So Adana is raped. Dad says, well, let's marry her to the guy. And the brothers go, okay, we'll take advantage because circumcision comes into play. I won't get into the details, but I will. Um, when you're circumcised as an adult male, you get sick for like three to four days because it's a pretty big cut and your body's going to have an, a reaction to that. And there's no antibiotics, so it's like salt, right? And you lie there and, you, and you, you're weak. And then so two of the brothers sneak into the city and slit everybody's throats while they're like that. That's the Dinah incident, right? Uh, so that, that happens. And then we're going to just go right past it for today. Um, ask questions anytime. Got Bible study on Wednesday starting up very soon for such questions. Chapter 35, 1 to 15, Jacob goes back after this to, to Bethel. And the thing about Bethel is that this is where Jacob saw the ladder in the first place, where Jacob's ladder happens, where he gets this promise that all the angels of God are fighting for him and on his side. Um, and he goes back there and he gets another vision. He gets a top off, which says, I'm still with you. It's going to work out. Go ahead and go forward. From there, from Bethel, he decides to go down to Bethlehem, which at the time is called Ephrathah. We're not exactly told why, but they don't get very far. And uh, Rachel, his most beloved of the two wives, who's only born one son to him, Joseph, um, she, she dies in labor with Benjamin. This is about the year 1901 BC, by the way. Uh, Benjamin is born uh, near Ephrathah, and Rachel is buried there. I believe you can visit her grave to this day. Um, in the meantime, like right after that, Reuben, firstborn guy who should be the heir, son of Leah, um, uh, he decides he doesn't want to wait because Billa, who is Naphtali and dad's mom, not a wife, but a sex slave, a concubine. He decides he likes her. She decides he likes him. And they do this thing and everybody knows about it. And that's, that just kind of happens. Um, I mean, I think uh, Jacob gets pretty upset about it. And Reuben will miss being the one who gets the promise that Judah gets as a result, as will Simeon and Levi, the two brothers who killed all the people. That's Leah's firstborn, Reuben, Simeon, Levi. All of them do these things. They lose the promise. Fourthborn, his name is Judah. Very good, very good. So from here, Isaac dies. He's buried. Esau and Jacob come together. They do this at Mamre. That's Hebron, for those who are playing uh, name bingo at home. Uh, and then, so they're at Hebron. Right? This place where Abraham and Isaac lived and died, where their bodies have been buried, um, it's kind of the first root, the deposit uh, of the promised land 
in their family. Now imagine your, your first ground that you own as a family and goes to the next generation, right? That's Hebron to this family that's three generations down. From there, we get a pretty decent explanation of Esau's lineage. That's chapter 36. We'll just skip that. And then we're into our particular text, chapter 37, uh, in which I want to highlight a couple things, right? Uh, So first off, that Joseph is now 17 years old. Two years have passed, okay? It is uh, not 1901 BC, but 1899 you know, what? They didn't think it was 1899, right? They weren't partying like it was 1899. It was, it was something else to them. But 1,899 years before Jesus is born, and that's a number given by, I think, to be a very uh, a good scholar. And so I think we can say, yes, this is right. But, you know, debate it somewhere else if you like. It's free. Um, but he's 17. Uh, he then is not the youngest of the brothers, but he's significantly younger than a number of them because he's with the sons of Billa and Zilpah. Here, it's, notice the ESV is quite wrong. It says his father's wives. No, they are not. That is not how the ancient world worked. A wife was called a wife, and she was a wife, and a concubine was called a concubine, and she was a concubine. And the big difference is the boys don't get inheritance. Yeah, They're just kind of cut off. They're slaves. So uh, Joseph's with his brothers who are slaves. And he comes home to dad and says, they're shirking it, dad. They're not doing what they should be doing. Can you imagine how this is starting off for Joseph as a family dynamic? Can you imagine living in a home with two wives and two sex slaves and all the slave boys around playing on the ground? And, and now Joseph's going to get a coat of many colors, right? That, that's what then comes next. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. And especially think about it this way, right? Rachel is dead two years now. Now forgive me if I get personal, but I'm pretty sure if my wife were to die, I would stare at my daughters more than I do now because I would see my wife. And I do when I stare at them. I look and I go, oh my goodness. They are the spitting image. I think that's how we say it in English of my wife. It's not very, you know, uh, what's that? Beautifying to call it a spitting image. The, the, the perfect reflection of my wife. So this is how he sees Joseph. And he's got a baby. I mean, Benjamin's a baby, but what's this old shepherd know about, you know, the baby? Maybe he carries him around all the time. I don't know. But Joseph's the image that reminds him of Rachel, the woman he worked so long for, right? Who he loved so deeply. And so he gives him this, this cloak, this coat of many colors, which whatever it was, however it looked, what the meaning of the text is, is that it was exceedingly expensive, right? Hey, guys, I know you're working at the chop shop to make ends meet at home. I just bought Joseph a Ferrari. You can't touch it, but he can wave at you and smile, and everyone will know that's your brother. It's kind of that kind of signal. And so you can see again why, why the guys don't like it so much. But then what I'd never seen ever myself, maybe you saw it every time, but I'd never seen until this year was, oh my goodness, he cloaks him in the promise of the rainbow. Jacob's not blind and stupid anymore. No, he's, he's repented. He knows the promises and he knows what he's been given. He doesn't have Moses to raw Genesis to read, but he, he knows what Noah got through that God held on to with Abraham. He knows about the promises that there will never be another destruction by water, but there will be one by fire. 
And all who trust in the one sent born of woman to destroy the devil's work will be saved from it and through it. He knows all this, and he knows the rainbow is the sign of that promise. And so he cloaks his son, who he desires to be the heir, I would imagine, and who almost is the heir. He cloaks his son in that promise, which sets up quite a thing for the story. Like, this means it's going to turn out good. But where did the rainbow come at the end of again last time? You know? A pretty big storm. And even as Joseph then contemplates these two dreams, we're not going to dig into the symbolism of them, but he clearly has the hunch, hey, dad, does this mean what I think it means, right? I had a dream that I'm going to be king, he says. And then the next thing that happens is his brothers betray him, throw him in a pit, sell him to his second cousins and he winds up a slave in a military house in Egypt wherein he is able to achieve amazing things because he just does the right thing with integrity and that often works out. He ends up in charge of all manner of stuff including the guy's wife who happens to be, can I say the word in polite company? Loose? And she desires this slave today. He's young and strapping, ruddy and all that. And he says no. And so what's a woman's scorn do? She lets her wrath fly. And of course she blames him. Get that slave out of the house. And just like that, I'm born to be king, he dreams. He's in a prison cell in a foreign land for years. How are your dreams? What are you praying for right now? I believe that as a people, you can call us a nation, a country if you want, but I mean a people, a group with a common story, that we are in a pandemic of lost trust with everybody. Nobody trusts anybody. And it's just getting worse. How is your inner spiritual life right now? Because when there is no trust, all there is is paranoia and pessimism. When there is trust, well, then there is love and hope. And this is the miracle that the Christian church has to get us through every collapsing society that ever comes our way or everything that becomes too complex and needs to be reformed and made simpler. So it runs well again, right? Collapsing society, reforming society, it's all the same. The, the later historians will tell us what we were and we'll disagree on Judgment Day. But at every time and in every place, the word of God is to be praised because he gives not only the sustenance you need for your daily bread and declares it shall never be taken away from you, but more than this, he gives you the hope from that to believe everything else is going to be taken care of. So while things are bad, you can still build, grow, work, do, and serve. You don't count it loss when the world takes your goods. You count it gain because Christ chose you to suffer. And especially if you have a moment then to testify. I believe God did that, right? Fire from heaven falls down, destroys my car. Well, God did that. Does that mean he's mad at me? Well, he didn't like the car very much, obviously. I wasn't in it though, was I now? Oh, so maybe I'll just say, I repent for whatever was wrong. Thanks for the forgiveness. Help me find a way to get to church. 
it's really about perspective. It's who is God to you? And is he good enough and big enough to do bad stuff to you, but you know you're on the same team? I'll show just a stupid metaphor, but I can remember playing basketball and being in the lane and in the way of my own teammate, having my own teammate shove me in the arm to get to the basket to score. You know what? I didn't yell at him. I Good way. Knock me out of the way. You do that, right? Because if it gets us where we need to go, well, again, there we are. Now, to take a quick look at our time, um, I gave you the big sweep of the story. I want to come back and look at another verse, though, and get real detailed on it. And that's verse 11 of chapter 37. So we're still on page 31, if you want to, want to get narrow with me. Um, and it just says here in English that his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. You know, I, I'd call it vanilla, but I really like vanilla. <laughs> You know, it, that, is a, that is a pasty, bland, meal kind of way to say what the text says with some very powerful language, uh, much of which will show up in Proverbs as technical terms for describing the way the world works, uh, particularly the two words that are about what Jacob does. And it's translated as kept the saying in mind. It is just two words. I have to use more than that in English, but it's, it's the word guarded or kept, right? The way you would, you would keep something in a box, right? So it isn't somewhere else. You guard that thing. Uh, his father guarded, and then it's just the word, word. His father guarded the word, which is doubly interesting given how he didn't really accept it when it was brought to him, right? His son's like, hey, dad, so I had a dream. I'm going to be your king before you die. And he goes, what are you saying to me? But then later... The words that were said are still there. And this guy who had a dream about a ladder and dream about his children being a blessing to the entire world through salvation that includes the cross of Jesus Christ, he goes, well, I did give the boy a coat of many colors, didn't I now? Maybe something's going on there. And he kind of he holds it. Yeah. Uh, his brothers, it's a different word there. And it is a word that is rightly translated as jealousy. They were jealous is all it says. Um, but what we have to keep here a little bit is that jealousy, like anger, is good. I'm going to say it again because I know I got your attention. Jealousy, like anger, is good. It has to be. Why? Because God gets jealous. Our jealousy is usually pretty bad, right? It doesn't mean that our jealousy is good just as God's jealousy is good. But if you can let the word be more rooted in the idea of zeal, well, then it has the way to go both ways. The same way that pride can be good and bad, but arrogance can't. Arrogance can only be bad, but pride can be good. Pride can mean dignity, and dignity is always good to give and to receive, right? And so also here, zeal can be good. Zeal for the right things is good. Ardor, hunger, passion, these are good. Unless they're for the wrong things, like how much you hate your brother. Well, now zeal is quite wicked. But it's not the zeal that's wicked, it's what it's for, right? The object, the thing in which your fear, love, trust, hope, actions, life, idolatry are placed. And what is their idolatry? Well, all it is is that they just know they're not as good as Joseph. And so clearly, 
the doctrine of forgiveness and the resurrection of the dead isn't taking root in all of them the way one would hope. And well, you might imagine in a, in a house that believes the right things, but has two wives and two sex slaves, all the things are going to not operate the way you'd like them to. See, we're New Testament Christians. We know what marriage is, and we all have marriages. We have the capacity to live a very different life than this. God will send us the trials he will. He'll put you in the prison he needs to put you in, and then he'll give you the light at the end of the tunnel, which is always his word, which is always the truth and hope that he has risen from the dead. Hallelujah. And so we're going to stay there right now with Joseph at the bottom of that pit in the jail where he is, where he has nothing, nothing but a dream that he still has to somehow believe is not false. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please rise for prayer.